in the name of the Holy and Undivided Trinity. Amen. We Episcopalians and other Anglicans are especially fond of the ancient saying, praying shapes believing. Ever since Elizabeth I, we have insisted that finding shareable patterns of worship is more important than exact doctrinal statements. Doctrinal statements can be helpful, but for us, they are secondary. Praying shapes believing. Shared worship before creeds. That is not a magical solution. Just as importantly, we've always recognized that there is no such thing as a perfect pattern of worship that we can all share without any reservations. Elizabeth wanted a Book of Common Prayer whose somewhat loose wording would leave enough wiggle room that her most Catholic-leaning and Protestant-leaning subjects would be able to pray it together. So, of course, the result did not totally satisfy anybody, like raising the debt ceiling. And Elizabeth had to assure everybody that it was okay to have differing beliefs about what was really happening when we received the bread and wine. She reportedly said, I have no desire to make windows into men's souls. So all the way down to today, we're invited to share in a common pattern of worship stretching back over centuries. But we're also welcomed to work out in our own lives what all of it means. And over the last 50 years or so, we've also realized that even our common pattern of worship can take a variety of forms. Before our current prayer book was adopted, there was only one Eucharistic prayer, and all prayers were still in Elizabethan English. With our current prayer book, we have not one, but six Eucharistic prayers, two of which are in Elizabethan English, the rest in the English of the 1970s. And since the 1990s, we've added three more Eucharistic prayers that use traditional language to challenge the very idea that God is exclusively male or female. That's a development that is sure to dismay a certain transphobic politician from Florida. There's more than one such Floridian, actually. But this development is nothing new. Ancient councils may have always referred to God as Father, but they could also insist that this father had a womb. And ancient saints, saints prayed to Jesus as mother. From as early as Paul's letter to the Galatians, gender binaries were being called into question. This is nothing new. And we don't need to protect our children from any of it. Furthermore, we're not done with adding more liturgies. 
We also have prayer books in Spanish and other languages, and there are now authorized versions of Eucharistic prayers A, B, and D, which you can find in the prayer book, that have been reworded again to remind us that God is not exclusively male or female. I noticed when I was filling it at the cathedral a couple of months ago that their altar book has already penciled in those changes. So nowadays, we pray together in a common pattern, but often in very different languages. And if you ask any of us what we think is really going on when we pray together, you'll get a virtually endless variety of answers, and not just about what's happening with the bread and wine. And we are okay with that. It's the Anglican way. People who prefer more doctrinal precision call it Anglican fudge. They do have a point, but it all comes from our ancient conviction that praying shapes believing, and from rediscovering ancient patterns of prayer that challenge obsessions with patriarchy. Now, why bring up all this Anglican Liturgy 101 on Trinity Sunday. Because it helps us to lighten up a bit when it comes to talking about the Trinity. You don't have to get it exactly right. And thank God, I don't have to get it exactly right either. In fact, there's no such thing as getting it exactly right. And our shared languages of worship are all intended to make room for a variety of interpretations, none of them final. It's no accident that today's lessons from Matthew's Gospel and one of Paul's letters point to what we later call the Trinity in the context of worship. Matthew is talking about the rite of baptism, and St. Paul is offering a blessing a benediction. Matthew mentions Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but says nothing about how they are related. Paul's benediction doesn't say anything about fathers or sons, though he did, of course, use that language elsewhere. And it talks about grace and love, and maybe most importantly, communion. Our over 200 appointed prayers for each week and each feast day always end with another way of talking about the Trinity. They are all addressed to God through the risen Jesus and in the unity of the Holy Spirit. Check it out sometime. They teach us in passing that the one God to whom we pray is also the one God through whom we pray and the one God in whom we pray. I love that, but that's just one more way of putting it. And those prepositions can be used interchangeably. We end a lot of our Eucharistic prayers with through Christ and with Christ and in Christ, and we do occasionally pray to the risen Jesus and to the Holy Spirit, and all of that is okay too we haven't really pinned anything down. The Nicene Creed puts things a bit differently. 
It tells us that the one God of Israel who called us and everything else into being from a watery chaos is also the one God who flows out to meet us on our own flesh and blood terms in the all-embracing life, death, and risen life of Jesus, drawing each of us in the life-giving spirit to flow together with God into an all-embracing communion of saints in the life of the world to come. Or at least that's the way I hear it. You might hear it a bit differently, and that's okay too. It's part of our worship, like singing a hymn, but it's not all of it. And it doesn't really pin anything down either. We consider it an important, even indispensable word about God, but hardly the last word. So instead of viewing the Trinity as the last word about God, it's healthier to welcome the doctrine as another helpful but always provisional attempt to give voice to a vital discovery going all the way back to the earliest days of our faith. When the first Christians started gathering, when the movement started spreading, the one discovery they seemed to share in common was that somehow they were being drawn into the very life of God, Jesus' risen life, the Church's spirit-filled common life, and the very life of the one God, whom Jesus called Father, mingled so intimately that they couldn't be separated. And among themselves, all the walls that seemed to divide people in daily life were being transformed into doorways that linked them all together. Their differences didn't vanish. They grew more rapidly than their minds could follow. And yet somehow those very same differences made them one body in Christ, members of one another, sharing a common life. That's why I'm especially drawn to Paul's blessing at the very end of 2 Corinthians, because my favorite word for sharing our vastly different divine and human lives in common as members of one another is communion. And I find Paul's closing words especially helpful in the light of how conflicted we all are these days, not just nationally but globally, because Paul's blessing is addressed to a highly conflicted community. In fact, influential factions in the church at Corinth have been dismissing Paul's words as fake news. He's been trying all sorts of strategies to convince them that his credentials are valid, but the Corinthians don't care about credentials. They're captivated instead by their own pre-tech versions of Truth Social. And it's clear from reading the entire letter that Paul worries that when he shows up, he will be rejected. Of course, being Paul, he thinks his authority should go undisputed. But he has to recognize, however reluctantly, that Christ is also inhabiting each of the members of this community. So he's obliged to counsel them to make up their own minds about what he's written. Judge for yourselves, he says. He can't enforce anything. 
He can only hope in the common life he and they already share with God. And then the letter closes with all these conflicts unresolved. So Paul's closing Trinitarian-sounding formula comes at a time of unresolved conflict. Maybe their conflicts are too extreme to resolve. Maybe they'll never find a way forward. He has no way of knowing at this point. And that's the last we hear about his relationship to this community. Everything is still in suspense. But we do know one thing with the benefit of hindsight. I'm pretty sure Paul's letter didn't settle anything immediately. But the Corinthians didn't throw it away either. That's how it wound up in what we came to call the New Testament. Paul's words remain. His opponent's words are forgotten. So apparently the Corinthians worked out their conflicts at least enough to pass on this letter with this benediction. Our gathering here today to celebrate the common life, the communion that we and God share with one another, is not going to settle anything immediately either. But in the midst of conflicts that often seem overwhelming, it awakens us to the one surrounding and saturating us and all others who from everlasting to everlasting is working relentlessly to move us from our conflicted humanity into a communion of saints, no matter how long it takes. And that can give us courage to join in that reconciling work in the face of countless setbacks. Maybe communion can't enforce anything, but it outlasts everything. And there is where our hope finally lies. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with all of you. Amen.